Well, here comes uh, another Books of the Year podcast. Robert Harris has uh, told us about his V2 book on a separate podcast. Uh, go back to uh, wherever you get your podcast from uh, if you want to find that. This is the Q&A session, and Robert is poised there. Robert, yeah. question number one. Uh, what was the last book you really, really enjoyed? As I say, it's often the, the second really is working quite hard. It's not just, yeah, it was pretty good, but, you know, that you just blew you away. No, it's sort of two, if I'm allowed to say that. Yes, one was um, Craig Brown's book on the Beatles, one, two, three, four, which I really liked and read during lockdown and cheered me up no end. Uh, just reminding, you know, you know, I was a child when the Beatles were going, but they were a big part of my childhood. And uh, uh, it was an optimistic book, sunny book, uh, funny full of anecdotes. So I found that a really good refuge during those early days of lockdown when it was so, everything seemed quite grim. Okay. And then on holiday in the summer, uh, I read Curtis Sittenfeld's book, Rodham. Uh, I mean, I've written alternative history myself, Fatherland, which imagined if Hitler won. Uh, she imagined that Bill and Hillary Clinton never married. And it tells the story of Hillary Clinton. Uh, pursuing a solo political career. And I thought it was great. I mean, I thought it was clever, an interesting idea. I thought the characters were wholly uh, believable and it told a good story. Uh, and it was well written. So, you know, uh, of novels that I've read recently, you know, I give that one high marks. Okay, so, Robert, so that's uh, one, two, three, four, and Rodham, Matt. Correct. Um, so, uh, Robert, so many of your books grounded in history. Do you have a favourite historian? Uh, yes. Well, I would. My the histo the person that really turned me on to history was A. J. P. Taylor. Now, yeah. uh, long since dead, but uh, a controversial figure, a left wing historian, um, Yorkshireman or North Countryman, I should say, uh, Oxford uh, professor who um, was always challenging on author, uh, the orthodoxy. He used to appear on television and give unscripted half-hour lectures, direct to camera, no visuals, nothing, just him talking. And when I was growing up, um, I used to watch those. And he was terrific, always challenging. And probably the first serious history book I ever bought was his uh, Origins of the Second World War. When I was about 14 or 15, I bought it. The school library had a little section of penguins which you could buy. And his book uh, I read and reread. And years later, um, I wrote a book about the Munich um, uh, Agreement, a, a thriller. And um, Taylor was a Big influence on me. I'd also say he was a terrific prose stylist. He wrote absolutely crystal clear uh, prose, and he was also a very good journalist. Uh, and he he came out with some wonderful one-liners. I remember he wrote about Rudolf Hess, who you may re remember was given a life sentence at the Nuremberg trials, having flown to Britain in 1941 to uh, try and persuade the British to join the Germans. Uh, in an alliance against Stalin. Um, Taylor thought this was a great injustice and said that Rudolf Hess had been jailed for no greater crime than being a premature advocate of NATO. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, I thought he was, he was wonderfully funny. So he's my favourite historian. I, I was brought up on by... Well, brought up. I had history teachers 
who used to sing AJP Taylor's praises all the time and point us towards, obviously there was no YouTube at the time, but you know, if you could catch one of AJP Taylor's shows as he was doing these uh, extraordinary talks without notes, they, they were quite something. Well, I mean, no one does that anymore, Robert. No, I mean, you know, it wouldn't be considered good television to have someone standing up and talking in that way. Um, and, you know, no doubt he would be uh, criticised by fellow historians who are pretty jealous. Um, but he was mesmerising performer. I was, I was yes. lucky when I, I, years ago, I was a reporter on Newsnight and I was able to interview him. So I did, I did get to meet him once. And he was a very uh, elfin, mischievous, tricky man, but very inspiring and interesting. Is there a book that you would like to step inside of? I know this sounds a little bit odd, but I did a book the other year about um, England imagining the West Wessex and the West Country as it was in the past and it might be in the future. And I read quite a lot of Thomas Hardy. And uh, the mayor of Casterbridge, I wouldn't want to be the mayor of Casterbridge and I wouldn't want to be a poor agricultural labourer. But uh, I think that the way that Hardy brings alive uh, England at that time and that, that its nature and its roots in the past, uh, I find it to, to tremendously evocative. And I would love to step back into that rural past of uh, Wessex, um, the area uh, around Dorchester where he lived, um, and about which he wrote so brilliantly. So uh, all those books of his, not just The Mayor of Casterbridge, Far From the Madding Crowd, another one, uh, they, um, that is a world that sometimes here, I live in the country, when the sun is going down and it goes very still and there's the scent of the fields uh, just before it gets dark, uh, you can feel a link with that England. I, I would like to step back to that world. Okay. How how long do you tend to give a book, Robert? Do you always finish them? Or I mean, for me, it tends to be very early on. I'll make a judgment about whether I'm going to bother finishing a book if you haven't got me in the first sort of ten or fifteen pages. Then I don't think it's going to happen. But how how long do you tend to give one to to get you gripped? Oh, not very long. I agree with you. I probably give it about uh, twenty or thirty pages. Sometimes I've pressed on with books uh, that I've been told, you know, are really great and just stick with it. And I've almost always regretted it because, um, you know, it's a matter of personal taste. And sometimes, you know, there are cults form around books that you're told, oh, you must read this. And you can't quite see what everyone's getting at. So, I, you know, life's too short. So I, I would tend to, I tend to give up on it pretty quickly. If we were to uh, to wander around your shelves, uh, Robert, what how would you how what would we see your book collection? Do you how do you how would you describe it? Is it filed <laughs> and neat or shambolic? You would think I was a lunatic, Simon. To be absolutely honest, if you walked around my book collection, a point which is frequently made to be my by my wife. Um, Lots of obscure books about Nazis, uh, rockets, <laughs> uh, <laughs> books bought many years ago, often before I married said wife, who was not aware of their existence, but which have peculiarly furnished me with an income ever since. Uh, <laughs> so, 
<laughs> um, you know, the complete transcripts of the Nuremberg trials, for instance. Uh, uh, so weird and obscure books. Uh, I've got a lot of books. I probably six or seven thousand, I would imagine. Um, you know, I used to be an obsessive collector of books and never went into a a town or a seaside place or anything without finding the local second-hand bookshop and scouring the shelves and carting them back. And, you know, one of the um, unfortunate things in the last few years, the internet age, although there's much to be said for it, um, the disappearance of the old second-hand bookshop in every little town and often in quite large villages is something I greatly regret. So I've got a completely mad dusty collection of books, most of which are never looked at again, but which I think might just come in. And curiously, they often have. There was one of those ridiculous Twitter spats a while back about during lockdown where some politician had done an interview on television and then they someone spotted, like, some book about the Nazis uh, on, the, uh, on the shelf and they said, there you go, look, you can't trust this Conservative government because they're all... They've all got Nazi books. You're thinking, well, if, if you like history, then <laughs> there's quite a lot of people who have, and you've just described, you know, you'd, you'd be in all kinds of trouble, Robert. Yes, I would. I mean, I think in that particular case, wasn't it that they had a copy of Mein Kampf? I mean, I think you can have a copy of Mein Kampf without necessarily wanting to go down and kind of, you know, shoot people or take over the country. I mean, you might read it simply because it's, it was a book that had an explosive impact on the 20th century. Yeah. Uh, no, I deplore that kind of narrow-minded, you must have uh, um, certain types of books on your shelves. I think that's completely crazy. Uh, you know, read books by monsters. Accounts. I mean, I've got Hitler's Table Talk, for instance, which was a great inspiration for writing Fatherland, which is Hitler's mealtime monologues taken down by a secretary. And it's a tremendously interesting book. It, it doesn't mean that, you know... You, you want to go and invade Poland. <laughs> Quite, yeah. Um, are there any books that stand out from your childhood? Um, yes. Uh, I, I'll tell you my reading uh, was uh, Just William, obsessive reader of the Just William books, uh, for, and then later Sherlock Holmes, and after that, the, the Maigret novels of Georges Simenon, which my father loved, oh, and yeah, I used yeah. to read those too. Certainly the uh, Simenon, I think, has uh, affected my own style of writing, which I hope, you know, tends, he was very economical in his, in his writing, and I try to do the same if I can. Do you have a favourite autobiography or biography, Robert? Well, I am... Absolutely gripped by the Robert Caro uh, multi-volume biography of Lyndon Johnson, um, which I hope that Robert Caro, now in his 80s, will uh, live to complete. Um, and they are just tremendous books about um, American politics and uh, human ambition um, and a mixture of idealism and corruption uh, if you're interested in American politics or in politics generally, I'd strongly recommend them, Recommend them, particularly the last two, um, um, one of which describes him as vice president and the other the master of the Senate when he controlled the Senate uh, in the 50s. Um, they, they're, they're wonderful books. 
Is, is there a place you go to to do your research, Robert, a, a sort of hidden place that you would... Oh, and your writing, I guess, would probably be about the same place? Yes, I uh, sit in... I have a study. We live, we've lived for nearly 30 years in an old um, Gothic, Victorian Gothic vicarage in the country, and I have the vicar's old study, and uh, that's lined with books, and I have a desk that looks out at the canal, and that's where I've written 13 out of the 14 books that I've produced. And, um, you know, when we moved out here, there was no um, real internet. Well, I mean, there was, but it was in the early days. And you, you one had to go to libraries and things. I mean, when I was researching Enigma, the first book I wrote here, that I used to have to go to the public record office and so on. But now everything is online. And it's incredibly, it's, it's really made one's working life so much easier uh, that most of what you need, you can actually get access to very quickly. I did a book on the Dreyfus Affair called An Officer and a Spy. Mm. Um, and literally everything that I needed was online. The French newspapers from the time, the trial reports, even the secret dossier that convicted Dreyfus as a spy, everything had been put online. So, and Google Earth is, is a brilliant tool so, you know, you don't really need to leave your desk, actually. And, and that's where I like to do most of my research because travelling is a bore, really, and it's, it wastes a lot of time. And finally, uh, Robert, is there, I don't know if you use books like this, but is there a book that always cheers you up? No, but I, I really often read Lucky Jim, which I think is a fantastically funny book. Um, uh, the Adventures of Jim Dixon, the hapless university lecturer in love and academia. Uh, and, of course, it has one of the greatest descriptions of waking up with a hangover that's ever been written, probably the greatest. Uh, so I would always go back to Lucky Jim by Kingsley Amos. OK, I, th- I, think you, I think you've completed your task, Robert. I think, Matt, uh, he's on, is he answered all, all the questions? I think, that, I I think, think, I think that's it. Yes, yeah, so he's done very well. I think Robert appeared on the Radio 2 show more than any other writer. And um, it was True. just because for Conclave... He keeps on writing great books. Exactly, that was our problem. Yes. We, well, we can't have Robert on again. Oh, no, it turns out Munich is very good. Looks like we're going to have to get Robert on again. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought yeah. it was just my pretty face, but no. <laughs> well, that is that you're so well, kind. Obviously, <laughs> yeah. well, uh, I used to love like coming you're... on and doing it. Yeah, well, we used to enjoy all kinds of things, which are now yes, prohibited we did. to us. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you're not alone. You know, yeah. I know. So anyway, yes, bastards. Whatever happened there? <laughs> <laughs> A controversial conclusion uh, (laughs) to the podcast. Right, okay, uh, Robert, thank you. Consider yourself booked for the next one. Bye, Simon. Bye, Matt. Thank you. Bye now. Bye-bye. Anyway, before we we conclude, uh, Matt, I did a commercial for T-Pigs. Yes. Was there an ad you wanted to do? Yes. Um, You know, Simon, people are always asking me, they say, Matt, how do you manage to juggle being such a great guy with also doing some fabulous cooking in the kitchen? And what I say that to them, was, Simon, I, I have been thinking that recently. Yes, and, and what I say to them is, I use the BBC Good Food Guide app uh, to help me with my cooking. And yesterday, I made a lemon meringue pie, 
in which, um, unfortunately, I misread the um, instructions about the number of egg whites, and so my meringue wasn't very meringue at all. Uh, but that wasn't the fault of the good food guy. That was all down to me. And I used them for my Yorkshire puddings, my banoffee pie, and my uh, other pies. I appear to be eating a lot of pies during this lockdown. But anyway, but, but that's what I use it for mostly is pies. Um, so, yes, the BBC Good Food Guide app. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. The only disappointing thing about that is that they're not going to sponsor us, are they? Because they're not allowed to all give no. us anything for free. So I'm no, a little bit disappointed no. with that one. But anyway. <laughs> <clears throat> Have we been sent anything at all? I mean, I know, Simon, you got sent something, didn't you? I got some free coffee. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. Anyway, um, <clears throat> very good. I think we've all been fabulous. All right. Yes, bye. Cheers, bye. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.